Welcome to OpenHive.js, the podcast for all things JavaScript. We are your hosts. I am Matteo Collina. And I am James Snow. It is much easier today to, you know, uh, contribute and you know, create a new project. It is, you know, so much easier. And I think that is something that I've, I've really valued in how GitHub has been doing things. And I think that really helps sustain open source a lot more and, uh, and make it more accessible. In this episode of OpenHive.js, we are talking to Liren Tall, developer advocate at Sneak and a member of the Node.js security working group about his passion for the open source community, ways to engage in maintaining projects, and the real cost of open source. I find it easier, I think, when people just splash out you know, a feature request and if you ask them, you know, if you'll say, I you know, totally support it, if you want to send a PR, I'll happily merge it. They just need that confirmation from you as a maintainer. They're coming from the outside. It's, it's a bit more frightening and scary for them on how to get started, how to do things. And so part of those things, I will just go off and, you know, straight off, you know, if I, if I find it valuable as well, I will just say, you know, I'll support you if you want to lend a PR and I will happily merge it in. Let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of OpenHive.js from Nearform. Hi everyone, I am Matteo Collina and we are here at OpenHive.js, our podcast on all things JavaScript with Nearform guests. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague James Nell and our guest uh, Liran Tal for a chat about empowering and fostering open source involvement and collaboration. Welcome, Liran, to here to OpenHive.js. I uh, would like to introduce yourself. Yeah, hey, Matteo. Hey, James. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Liran Tal. I'm based in Israel. Uh, you know, it's mostly sunny, uh, the part of the year. Uh, I'm really fascinated about open source. I've been so since uh, my early childhood with Linux. So that's kind of like been my... Uh, my theme around, you know, my technical uh, uh, achievements and, uh, you know, career things that I've been doing uh, and day-to-day stuff. I'm today uh, doing uh, developer advocacy for, uh, for Snake. So uh, that's, that's uh, a short bit about me. Thank you, Liran. Um, you know, James, what, what's your mind? Uh, just, you know, thinking about open source, thinking about, uh, you know, all the various projects and stuff that we're, that, that we're all involved with and how we maintain those, how we encourage folks uh, to contribute to it, and how do we keep up with it? Like Mateo, I know you're, you know, you're involved in. Well, a little bit. Rid of these. Well, to be honest, I'm, little, I'm involved in a little a bit. bit too much stuff at this point. I don't know, uh, as well as you, James. I don't know. So the question, you know, uh, kind of the question on my mind, you know, is, you know, how how can we. How, you know, how do we maintain these projects? How do we, you know, grow involvement in a project? Right? How do we encourage a community to build around it? Um, and just kind of curious what your thoughts were around that, man. So um, this topic, you know, I think one of the things that uh, uh, clicked for me a while back, you know, probably a few years back, was uh, with regards to like open source and maintenance, I think was uh, uh, the prominent example of uh, Synresaurus. I mean, he is, you know, maintaining probably thousands of NPM packages, you know, hundreds of, of projects that are, you know, are probably the most active. And uh, yeah, it, it, to be honest, it's what at the, uh, there was a point where it was like completely blowing my mind, you know, how can you uh, 
how can you maintain that to like a level where everything is you know well addressed you know well maintained you know community is welcomed uh, you still keep on you know uh, maintaining those projects you know actively and successfully uh, you know and how do you do that at the, at the rate you know at a scale of having you know so much project you know going on and granted you know you know a few years back um, I think Cinderasaurus you know is still uh, is still is still without you know a bigger family. Uh, but, you know, even when I think about, you know, myself, you know, even without kids, you know, that's a whole lot of investment. Um, and, and I know that uh, Stingray is doing that uh, as like a full-time open source developer. But still, if you think about a scale of projects needing, you know, to, to like the context which required, that is something that is, uh, uh, you know, still, uh, I appreciate that, you know, so much in terms of how someone can, can just keep up with it. So I think that's that has been something that has been uh, on my mind. Like, how do you make projects successful uh, in those kind of like uh, situations? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's just this constant back and forth. You know, kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, especially for someone that does have family. You know, I have I have four kids all together. Um, so much here, bless them. And I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I made the decision a while a while ago that you know it's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna work on the weekends, right? And, uh, and I and I limit my time. And then ends up strictly limiting the amount of actual open source stuff that I can do, right? Limiting the number of projects. So some of these folks that have so many projects, I mean, just like Mateo here, right? Yeah. Uh, Mateo, in terms of how you balance your time, right? I mean, how do you decide? So it's, um, it's actually very interesting. Uh, most of my open source, so I divide my time on two main blocks. One is, so I have some open source time, like near from sponsor, a little bit of my time for doing open source. So I'm working on near from clients as well as internal stuff, as well as uh, open source. Um, on top of that, I put in some, some, some significant amount of hours of my own time because I really enjoy it. Overall, I divide my open source time into uh, more or less two main blocks. One, or uh, maybe three, but one is essentially uh, bugs and bug fixes and generic maintenance, stuff that I don't need myself. And everybody that has collaborated with me on any sort of project will know that my default answer for any sort of bug is, would you please send a pull request? Yep. Thank you. That, that's my main answer. Like, it's your bug, not mine. I don't care. <laughs> I do, like my... hmm? I, I do like that. I do like that. I like that. Those serious hey, of hey. tweets on Twitter that you're uh, always. Uh, I'm just things. not my bug. Like it's your application that's using my code for whatever reason, and then it's your responsibility okay. to fix it. Okay, I'm not necessarily going to fix it for you. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are paying, yeah, totally. Like uh, you, every everybody that is working with us as clients for near from knows that uh, we have got long. We go long lens to get all possible bugs fixed, but uh, people that are not like generically, it's it's your bug. So whoever is using it in real product, in real world products, whoever is making money and profiting out of it, should be responsible to fixing those bugs. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's an important point because they, there there there's so many projects that start just as as a developer, you know, uh, you know, just scratching a personal mm -hmm. itch, uh, and how they're using it you know, this bug may not be actually important, yep. right? Um, or, you know, in supporting some other enterprise, some other company, making money off of their code is not something that they had originally intended when they published this, uh, the source for a particular model. True. I mean, it just evolves and grows over time. And sometimes it gets to a point where it's 
quite different from the the use case that you intended it to be. Yeah, yeah, I know that there are some modules. Um, I think some of the you know some of the happy modules and you know and some others that are out there they kind of just take this this um, point of view that you know what um, this isn't supported right or you know if if, if you want the support you know you're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we publish the source code, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to entertain your you know your yeah, support, support requirements. Right. Um, and, you know, and it's interesting to see the contrast of those, you know, when we talk about, you know, how, you know, like some projects like Node, where we want to actively go out and build uh, this broad community of contributors and users and, and all this kind of stuff. And we deal at one point, I think we were dealing with something like 90 pull requests a week uh, in Node versus other projects where it's just like, you know what, I don't want to support this unless you're paying me. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're so, not even there yet with with companies, you know, sponsoring like generic companies sponsoring their work on open source. We're not even there yet. The first question, you know, I can have written down here, you know, is kind of how can we grow an open source project beyond its main maintainer? Mm-hmm. Um, and then this whole discussion, you know, just kind of implies that for a, a good percentage of these projects, we actually don't, right? You know, you know, do we do we need to build a community of contributors to mm. every open source project or is it okay if it's just a single maintainer if that's what that maintainer wants i mean for me i can share a story so i i was going to uh, i think it was a company named payo in israel and um, they invited me to talk a little bit about you know my experience in open source and one of the one of the tips i gave them in terms of how do how do you grow you know to be a scalable model for open source was uh, was that for for projects where I you know I see people actually uh, like contributing pull requests or you know you know being involved in triaging uh, specific bugs and so on? What I usually do is you know I try to be very welcoming you know very onboarding them you know saying thank you and all of these things. And what I would usually do when I want to support you know get someone on the project is I'd go ahead you know ping them that I'd be happy if they join the project as a, as a collaborator to help maintain it. And I'll send them uh, like an actual uh, invite as well, so like they have both, and they can decide if you know if that's what they want or not. And you know, I, I share that experience there, and you know, uh, it actually you know worked for like quite a few times that I tried it off. Uh, so people actually did get more involved, you know, did create pull requests, like fix some of the uh, open issues and so on. It's like a very uh, easy way for me to then scale off, you know, beyond just myself maintaining something. Uh, but what happened after this talk is uh, like they they also asked me to to come in because they maintain quite a few uh, open source projects that I wanted to like get a grasp of you know how other people are doing it, and so what happened is after I you know I, I shared this uh, you know called kind of, called of a secret with them, they uh, uh, one of the maintainers of the other projects was just you know pinging me asking me if I want to be added to their project to help maintain it. So uh, it it was funny just how things uh, kind of uh, shift around. And of course, they they added me, and you know I've been trying to be active and follow up, but uh, it's uh, you know not exactly um, uh, my cup of tea in terms of the project itself. So I've been slowly, uh, slowly uh, just tracking it. Uh, but you know this is this is a way that has been working for me in terms of you know how do you grow a project yeah. beyond me as a single maintainer? I I can confirm, like one um, long time ago, I started. Uh, I decided I was going to build a, a web framework. I was very, very frustrated with the options that were there from a technical point of view and our community as well. So I ended up saying, well, I want to build one, but 
I'm not going to build one alone because it's way too much work for a single person. So I so the the way I've started building that framework was literally to pitch this idea to people up until somebody was actually willing to pick it up and start doing work. And essentially, I started building the community before building the framework itself. So, and I, I said to myself, I won't start development until we have, I have another person that wants to put some time and work with me on that journey. Right. So fast forward three years, we got Fastify V3 coming in a few, in a few weeks to some extent. We are going to be RC1, I think this uh, at the point of the recording. So maybe when this is out, it's probably out. I don't know. So, and uh, we have more or less about 10 collaborators, people like which, which are community where people fix their own bugs. So it's uh, essentially, they know if they report, they were going to get asked, please fix it. (laughs) So uh, that's, that's the key fundamental piece of the community. So it's uh, to some extent a self support type of situation. And uh, it's working, it, it's a little bit more sustainable than other models that I've seen not working or working in the other, in the rest of the ecosystem. I mean, it really is fantastic. Fastify is a really good example, I think. Um, it does raise a question, you know, so, so far all of the conversation we've had, you know, your past few minutes has been focusing on bugs, right? Um, I found a bug, it doesn't work, I need to fix it. What about feature requests, right? And how are those different? Are, are those things handled differently than a bug, right? Um, I'm talking about, you know, hey, you know, this thing does X, Y, Z right now, but I want it to do A, B, C also, right? Yeah, I find it easier, I think, when people just flash out, you know, a feature request. And if you ask them, you know, if you'll say, I, you know, totally support it. If you want to send a PR, I'll happily merge it. I find it that most people will actually confirm their their like intention and will actually follow up and will put a PR or you know will say no I'll take a few days and try to work on it. So because I think it, I think what they need is like that uh, that motivation boost that you know if you see it as something that will get merged and you know they want to be part of the project one part of the community you know part of whatever you know it is being uh, uh, built here. They just need that confirmation from you as the maintainer. They're coming from the outside. It's it's a bit more frightening and scary for them on how to get started, how to do things. And so part of those things, I will just go off and you know straight off. You know, if I if I find it valuable as well, I will just say you know I'll support you if you want to lend a PR. You know, I'll happily merge it in. It's pretty nice, I would say, because it's uh, very similar to what I do. So I ask them to if it's a complex feature. I asked to more or less write a plan and then go implement it. Most of the time, though, I have on the on my project on Fastify and other bit. Most people don't, so it's uh, you know most. The, I don't have stats, but it would be good to collect stats on this. But my take is maybe eighty percent say no, twenty really? percent say say I'm going to do it. The best ones are oh, this is a nice feature to have. And then I said, well, would you like to implement it? Oh, no, I don't have time. <laughs> I wonder so, if that's related to like the complexity involved also with some of these features. If you want to do a feature, if you plan to do a feature request and you're not willing to put in the time. and or, or pay for it to be done, yeah. 
or paid for to be done, probably it's never going to happen. Uh, there is um, on an edge case on most of my project, which is if if I think it will truly benefit the project, and it I believe it will be impo most impossible for anybody else but me to do, then we'll probably go ahead and do it. Yeah. And uh, th this has been that's a case throughout most of my open source. I was just thinking that you know in one one approach that I've been kind of you know stewing on in the back of my head is uh, you know for when you know for fairly large projects when these feature requests do come in it would be really interesting to have the ability to assign a dollar amount to it and say okay. Um, you know, if you don't want to do it yourself, right? Um, you know, it'll cost this much to do. So if I can get sponsorship, I can get some funding to do it, then then okay, right? And, but just be upfront about it and say, okay, it's going to take this much time, so it's going to cost this much. Now that I'm thinking about it, I personally I think even like uh, like a monetization wouldn't be enough of of like a of a sentiment that for me, I will, I will go like, like motivation boost for me to go and work on it just because, you know, it's not, we're going to get paid as like, uh, as something that is part to a salary or something like that. So it's, it's more about, you know, the time of day that I have, you know, just like you said, James, you know, weekends are for kids and stuff like that. And so your time of day of working on something is pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty set and, and, and fixed. And if you're giving attention to Fastify, then maybe, you know, a node pull request or something else that you need to have on your mind, you know, we'll need to get, uh, you know, pushed back a bit off. So I think for a lot of things, like even if, if people will open, you know, 10 feature requests and people will put or companies will put money behind them, I don't think that I will be able to like attend to them at all, uh, just myself. Like that's why I would want, you know, others as well as part of their maintenance uh, work because, you know, I'd be happy to, you know, if others want to help out. And so we kind of scale out uh, my time with, you know, someone else also working on the project. Anytime we start talking about other people, bringing other people into a project, we, we immediately have to start talking about um, culture, processes, tooling, things like this to kind of make it easier. So what kinds of culture processes, tooling are most effective, right, in maintaining these projects? For me, I think it's, uh, I mean, the number one thing that I've seen useful that helps both me and others is the fact that the projects are well-tested. So I have have this one project, which I'm really proud of uh, with a CLI thing called Dockly that helps you kind of like manage uh, containers, uh, you know, Docker containers on the CLI and has its terminal user interface. But when it started out, you know, I was starting it a few years back and I was thinking, you know, well, I don't know if that's going to fly out or just a fun project. I'm going to do. And I, you know, as, as it always happens, I completely, you know, dedicated more and more time to it and it grew and, you know, also became a bit popular, but then I never took the time it needed to add tests for it. So anytime someone wants to add something, I need to sometimes just, you know, run some manual tests and, you know, see that something is, you know, well working, not breaking anything else. And for others, I need to ask them, you know, when they add a pull request, sometimes ask them as well themselves to check it, you know, and see that things are working. So I think, you know, having a testing um, strategy is not something that, you know, only helps, you know, beyond, I think we're all agreeing on a testing side, but it's not just a technique, you know, just, just for technical debt. It also something that helps you, you know, give confidence when others, you know, want to add 
uh, you know, more functionality or fix a bug. And so both them and you have this confidence, you know, that nothing is, uh, you know, or like a lower chance that something is broken and they have this confidence when the uh, pull request, you know, uh, just gets green. So, you know, they have this idea of like, well, maybe now he will emerge it or she will emerge it because, you know, it's already, you know, green and so on. So I think that is something that uh, as an open source project, if you are, you know, going to welcome new maintainers and if you expect to maintain it in the future, having testing is a well way to onboard people beyond the technical debt and the other uh, uh, strategies around it. I have a few things to say about this. (laughs) I knew you would. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't expect anything else. (laughs) I, uh, yeah, no, this this is a topic that's very close to my heart. So I started contributing to uh, one of my first open source projects that I started contributing to was the MQTT library. And uh, the unit tests in that library have a nice property. <laughs> they might pass or they might fail. It's an amazing property. It's an amazing property <laughs> that completely related to the card extension of, of, of the code. And the reason is when doing network things, it's actually, you might rely on timers, you might rely on a bunch of different things that make not that make things not super testable. And the architecture of those tests is actually pretty bad on its own. So you need also to, when you build, when you choose like which framework I'm go, am, I use, am I going to use to test my library, that also has some impact on the longevity and how you will get people to contribute to that um, to the to the library itself because it's essentially that MQTT is completely unmaintainable there's a few people now that are trying to take it over mm-hmm. and they're having some a hard time in making the test pass in the first place yeah sounds like you're stuck on the same problem I am yeah essentially so um, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's it so uh, it tested, test isolations, feature, feature isolation, everything is every, everything. Try to isolate as much lower than the minimum amount of share state as possible between tests. Do not rely on share components and all a bunch of other things. So, yeah. So, how about linting? I mean, you know, so it, it, there's, there's, it, there's so many different opinions about this, and so many people just have, you know, you know should we use semicolons? Should we not use semicolons? And, um, standard versus, you know, ESLint mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Um, how important are those tools and are the differences between those tools important at all? Um, I like, I like using, uh, formatting. So anything like prettier or, uh, or linters is useful for me because, you know, when working in a team and I, I view, always view, try to view a project as if a team was working on it because then it helps me planet, you know, to all of these scalable things that we have to support in terms of the community and everything else. And so, you know, when I read a bunch of code from someone else, I want to read it as if I was reading it. And so that's where like, you know, everyone set on the same, you know, um, a style guide, the way that Prettier does helps me do that. So I like it. Um, but I will say this other thing, and that is when other people are coming into the project, you know, if you're not setting up things correctly, or, you know, they may just use some some ID and editor that doesn't, you know, support that kind of linters and, and code style guides, etc. What happens is they may mess up the formatting and what you get is usually those pull requests that they, you know, added a feature or fixed something and they did an amazing job, 
but at the same time, you know, they messed up the whole inters. And you know, maybe they'll catch it when they do a you know a pre uh, a pre commit hook things uh, to the push. Maybe they'll catch it on the PR itself. Uh, maybe you'll have to remind them about it. Uh, but it's uh, it's always like a like a downturn uh, when trying to contribute something and you change the whole style guide. Uh, probably you no know, uh, in accident, but you end up doing it. Uh, one thing that I've, I've found useful, uh, I'm sure other IDs have it, but VS Code has this uh, action that allows you to save a project without formatting it. And I've I've even been doing that for like for like the Node thing for like contributing a doc change now. So uh, I know that well. I'll I'll press the uh, command S. I'll go ahead and save it with formatting. So for all of those projects that I you know have this one-off contribution for, I'll usually do this uh, uh, just shortcut command on like save it without formatting and you know make sure I'm not introducing any any formatting changes into the code base itself when I'm doing a PR. Uh, yeah, I think uh, you know I think the issue that it that it really adds is just to, you know talking about friction of the pull request, right? You know you know how difficult is it to 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 get that new that bug or that new feature implemented without having to worry about all the other cruft around it, right? The the testing or the or the linting or you know the style yeah. guides. If we can automate as much of that as possible, right? And we reduce that friction and allow you to focus more on the actual code that's being implemented. Yeah, which exists. Eslint has this minus minus fix tag and uh Preclear has this formatting as well. So you know I'm, I'm using Husky and some of these hooks and uh all of these are have this like pre-commit step where they will add the automatic fixes and the prettier formatting. So like, even if you have, if you don't have prettier on the IDE, it's part of like the dev project. So it will run anyway. And you know, most, like most chances uh, that it will catch, you know, whatever it can, which is hopefully most of it indeed, um, you know, and send that formatted in the proper way. So, you know, just kind of think it through, you know, you know, we, at, we, you know, we're creating this culture, we're putting these processes in place. What is the most important component that creates an environment where these where new contributors can be successful in the project is it about the tooling or is it more about the personal interactions between them yeah i'd have to say it's the it's the human side of it right it's uh, even if you have a great you know all the tests required all the automation around it um all the processes are there but maintainers you know would lack the you know the, the inter uh, 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 you know, the intersocial connectivity to just connect with humans, you know, listen, listen to their problems and, and stuff and, you know, engage in a proper manner. Uh, it's, it's not going to help. So I think the, the human side here, and, uh, uh, I think being more empathic to users, uh, you know, with whatever they bring up in the project is, is probably the, the key, yeah. a key success factor. Uh, which oh, I'm saying this, but also I'm, I'm reminding myself of this person called Dino Torvalds, and I think he doesn't get like you know the A plus on uh, <laughs> yeah. intercommunication skills, uh, but still that project flourishes. So you know it's uh, it's probably a bit more complicated than just that. Yeah, I remember you know it's it's a story I've told a few times that you know when I first when I first started getting involved with Node it was about 2013 wasn't not part of the project yet in any way. I found a bug in one part of it and had some you know. Yeah, reported it and was was promptly told that I did not know how this kind of code worked. Um, you know, it, it really kind of drove home the, how you communicate with the folks that are trying to communicate with you can really make or break a project. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and a lot of the community issues that we saw with Node um, at that time, you know, were very reflective on that on that communication style. And in, in 2015, when I when I got involved again. 
right around the time we launched the foundation, I was noticing that every time somebody came, you know, from outside the project came up with an idea, like, hey, let's do this. It was just an automatic no. Just no. No, that's locked. No, we can't do that. We can't touch this. We can't do that. Um, you know, and it was just very, very negative, And there was very little growth in the project. I know some would say, you know, some could probably argue today that there might be too much growth, right? There might be <laughs> too much might you know, potentially be changing. But we've really been able to flip that conversation on its head, you know, by making this kind of a default. If you're willing to put the work in, then yes, we can talk about it. We can, you know, it's something that can be worked on. So, you know, just kind of thinking, thinking through it a little bit more, you know, the sustainability is, is big. I mean, we've talked about kind of process, right? But how do we make that process sustainable over time? Most of these, you know, most of these contributors are doing, you know, they're, they're making these contributions in their own time. They're not being paid um, necessarily to, to work on open source, or they may be using the open source during their day job, but their, their, their employer is not actually paying them to make improvements to it, <laughs> right? How do we, you know, what are, what are the strategies that we need to start looking at to make open source sustainable over time? So it's very hard to get money to um, collaborate to uh, open source maintainers. And the reason for that, it's um, like open source maintainers, even though you give them money, they might not have the bandwidth to do the work and the money in order to, you know, you need to make enough money to leave your job to some extent, right? So it has this flip on and off situation where it might not be for everybody. So uh, it makes also financial planning and life very hard, especially if you have family or commitment. So I am not, I'm not a true sustainer of giving developers money. It's helpful in certain cases and for people that need them, like there is a few people that are uh, freelancers or anyway, um, they do courses, they do, they are content creators to some extent using a broader term. And for those people, you know, direct money contribution is actually very helpful and, uh, and a strategy for inter integrating their, uh, uh, their intake. So that's, that's a good one. But overall, I, I think it's not for everybody. And a lot of people still want the safety of a job to some extent. And because of this, you need to educate the companies that if they're using open source, you know, they need to go and fix their bugs. And if they relies a lot on their code, on, the, on those code, on the code of that, you know, is available in the community, then they should be take, take a, a stab in maintaining that code as well. Yeah, that, that, that's a big one for me. Um, I, I, I can't stand it when a company is, is deriving value from open source, and, but then turning around and completely refusing to, to contribute back to that project or contribute, you know, um, in, in some way to the, uh, uh, to the community around it. It's like, I'm not talking about paying for it. I, you know, I'm talking about contributing back, you know, back, you know, in some way, whether you're helping triage issues or, writing documentation or, or, you know, some other kind of valuable contribution. If you're, if you're a company that's using open source, you, you, you have an imperative to, to get, to contribute back to it. Yeah. I agree with both. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know, sneak is, is, you know, leverages open source a lot. And it's actually one of the things I really like about the company is that, you know, they do actively go out and, and do these kind of contributions. Um, is, is there, you know, kind of a, any kind of, 
company policy around it or is it just kind of cultural or or you know how is that addressed at a corporate level it's a good question i mean we are so we have we are pretty big right now but the growth has been uh you know immense in the last year so if you take you know one year back or you know one year and a few months the company has been around uh something like you know 30 40 50 people so that's a very small startup um and with the recent growth, you know, we've we've hitting some some numbers around you know 200, 300 kind of employees now. So uh, I think outside the company looks you know much much bigger, and it, and it is you know it got bigger. There's amazing growth, uh, but yeah, like you can imagine that you know when it was 30, 40, 50 people, uh, it's it's really hard to also put that as part of the agenda. It's super important. Uh, some people internally have already voted in terms of oh, not voted, um, voiced is the right uh, term voiced you know their uh, intention for us you know to sustain more open source so there's you know some of us are active on the node foundation security group so you know trying to be more active there and influence you know as much as we can on the company time as well um there are some other initiatives uh you know generally going on but uh there hasn't there hasn't been yet uh you know a formalized company policy uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, this will be something that we'll be able to uh, push in uh, soon as well. Nice. So, you know, the one question I would have, that's kind of the final question I would have for, for the both of you, is if not, if, if not money, right, or, you know, in, in the absence of more companies stepping up to, to contribute to these projects, you know, what is one thing that you'd like to see in terms of improving the sustainability of open source in the community? So I think if it was something else, I think I think generally what GitHub has been doing, um, I think for most people who have been, you know, for GitHub has been the default experience for them, you know, in the recent, you know, years, in the last couple of years, it seems very obvious, but, uh, you know, for me, I've been doing open source for a long time. And, and before that, my project used to live on SourceForge, which, you know, I don't know if a lot of the uh, listeners actually, you know, remember that what I, what that is, but if you think about it, the move from SourceForge to uh, to GitHub as a philosophy, as you know, what is going on, and how do we how do they enable uh, you know people to kind of like develop and put things more in in the like the open uh, uh, in the public domain, is is an amazing uh, gap that they have just breached on. I mean, it is much easier today to you know uh, contribute and create a new project. It is. You know, so much easier, and I think that is something that I've I've really valued in how GitHub has been doing things, and I think that really helps uh, sustain open source a lot more, and uh, and make it more accessible. Like for example, for me, for a lot of thing, a lot of times, I will if I need to make you know small edits, I will just use the GitHub UI uh, to just you know edit a file in place and you know add my add my uh, uh, updates to it. So I don't need an IDE, I don't need Git local install. Um, so I think GitHub is actually uh, in terms of the functionality and the features that they add, they actually make it uh, more sustainable and more easier uh, for others, you know, developers and maintainers alike to to take part in it. And I like that. I, I really value uh, this approach. Very cool. Mateo, did you have any uh, final thoughts? I want to say something a little bit, a little bit different. And it's uh, uh, whenever you are, uh, what is, what is, uh, what is missing and uh, exactly how how things should be perceived is is how management uh, thinks about open source so 
and our management thinks about giving back to the tech community. So I would say that is the major, uh, the major point of view. So it's um, that is the major, the major, major gap. And um, in in essence, we have been educating uh, management in a bad way. And part of this is our fault. If you look into yeah. the year thirty years ago, twenty years ago, if you wanted to build software, you needed to pay money. You were paying money for your IDE. You were paying money for your libraries. You were just paying money. And uh, open source has won by making all of that free <laughs> to some extent. And it has completely superseded all those business models. Like things about what Borland, Borland was doing, in fairness. And, uh, uh, or what Microsoft has been doing, which in order to be, uh, to be able to win again the developer community had to make, yep. had to build a, a free editor where they were selling Visual Studio for like a thousand or something per seat per year or something like that. <coughs> so it's, um, to be honest, we have educated managers to think that software is free. Um, however, it's not. So because it's not, somebody needs to be, they need to think that they, there is a price to pay, which is a different price than what they were using before in terms of uh, licenses and fees. It's more a price on, well, I need to allocate a few people on maintaining this, this and this and that. So um, that's, my, uh, that's my take. So it's right. more or less starts from the top up. And uh, a company, this is true for companies at any size, to be honest. So, um, but especially the largest right. uh, or the largest and more profitable organizations. And or cloud companies, cloud companies make a ton of money, and they don't. Most of them do not share much back. Yes, I have, I think that that that's probably the one thing that is you know, that bugs me the most about the messaging that you know, hey, it's open source, we can use it for free. Um, it, 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 it's just entirely the wrong way of thinking about it, because um, it's not free. You may you may not have to pay licensing costs, but there there are costs. Um, so I'm going to ask you, you know, just completely different question, different topic, kind of thinking forward over the next couple of months, I know we're all just kind of disrupted and, and, you know, doing things differently and different habits and stuff right now. Uh, Laren, what is one thing like over the next like month, two months that you really want to do just person outside of software, outside of open source? Uh, walk outside with my son, <laughs> I guess, because <laughs> I've been on lockdown for like four, four weeks or I, I, I legitimately lost the track of time but uh, I, I think just uh, meeting people would be number one getting out and enjoying yeah yep. thank you Liran for for being our guest thank you for having me so I really enjoyed it this has been another episode of Open Hive JS the podcast for all things JavaScript from Nearform Join us next time for more insights into the open source and JavaScript communities. Until then, thank you for listening.